Hello. As we all still try to manage in the best way we can our daily lives during this pandemic, some researchers are predicting that the long-term impacts brought on by the trauma of COVID will lead to serious mental health problems. A study in the US in June revealed unprecedented levels of trauma from the pandemic, way above those experienced, for example, by US soldiers deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Covid is affecting everyone. The trauma is emerging from many kinds of loss, of loved ones, of jobs, of kids not in school. So what do we mean by trauma? How should we manage it? And what can we learn from traumatic events in the past? World wars, terrorism, the troubles, take your pick, in order to best equip ourselves in the future. With me is Orla Muldoon, Professor of Psychology at the University of Limerick, and Mark Maguire, Social Anthropologist at Maynooth University. Thank you both so much for coming in. Orla, you had what could only be described, I think, as, as a fairly peripatetic upbringing, primary school in Galway, secondary school in Wicklow, university in Belfast and early on I gather you became interested in how people deal with adversity as they as they grow up um, you know obviously in terms of the troubles what a whole generation of young people endured during that time it was quite a formative time for you up there yes yeah, so I did my PhD in Queens and um, the topic was the impact of the political violence in Northern Ireland on children specifically and um, but since that time, I suppose um, it wasn't today or yesterday that <laughs> uh, I finished college. So since that time, I've looked at various different types um, of trauma um, and its impact on adults, children, family relationships. Um, and I suppose m- m- also with how, how well people integrate and um, can engage with social life and be functional um, after experiencing different types of adversity. Uh, Mark, you spent some time up in Northern Ireland as well, I gather, and and ended up in Maynooth University. But you spent years studying the Vietnamese programme Refugees. Mm -hmm, Sure. Which is particularly interesting. I mean, it was that generation, what they would commonly call the Vietnamese boat people, the people who survived the Vietnam War and Mm. and were then allowed to have a kind of uh, a way of emigrating to countries like the US afterwards, a safe way. Yes, absolutely. And we kind of forget, I think now, quite how large the Vietnamese refugee crisis actually was that kind of collapsed into the term boat people. But you're talking about many, many millions of people that had to flee Vietnam after the communist takeover. And I often found quite disturbing, and numbers can tell a certain story, that um, about half a million people are completely unaccounted for. Quite an extraordinary phenomenon. They just left Vietnam and never reappeared anywhere, which will give you some extent of the the numbers that died at sea, uh, the people who simply were killed in border zones, for example. So it was quite a, quite a colossal tragedy that befell the country. But for the people that arrived in Ireland, it was initially a very small number. And what I did was actually traced their lives over three generations. Um, and the older generation, I think, were the people you'd probably most readily associate with a term like trauma. Uh, so you'd sit, for example, as a researcher for an afternoon with folks who had watched parents being garroted in front of them or had seen the effects of, of bombs or napalm landing. Um, and sometimes they were remarkably funny people, actually, and told the story of something that would be, frankly, beyond human comprehension as a, an anecdote. Uh, so it takes a while as a researcher, I'm sure, um, that that's something that strikes psychologists very powerfully, that you sometimes get uh, a, a 
recounting of history that's either listless and emotion-free, uh, as if it happened to somewhere, somebody else, or it's completely enlivened. It's a story, essentially, a kind of a cultural memory, for want of a better term. And is it generally that that comes with time, that the older they are, the more they're able to express themselves like that? Perhaps. I, I actually don't know. Um, as an anthropologist, I'm not expected to have a full scientific knowledge of why people do the things they do. I'm just interested in it. Um, I, I was interested, I think, in the fact that it wasn't just words for people that would often have broken English uh, when they spoke to me and I had broken Vietnamese when I spoke to them. But what you found was that they actually put something you could call trauma into their homes in how they decorated things or where they put photographs or how they arranged uh, family images very particularly. Um, a lot of Vietnamese people in Ireland and, and elsewhere around the world uh, would claim if you ask them on a census that they're Catholic or, or that they're Buddhist, but they're ancestor venerators, um, as many, many populations are in Asia. So each home would have essentially a shrine to the ancestors. Um, and, you know, I could ask them stories about what happened to X and Y, and it would open up a box of memories, basically. Um, so I found that was kind of interesting that in some ways, perhaps in our part of the world, especially in Ireland, where there's such a strong literature about memory um, yeah. and the experience of being Irish, we're quite self-obsessed. Um, but that in other cultures, maybe it's put somewhere, those memories, and they can be brought out on certain occasions. And I found that kind of interesting, I have to say. Well, I suppose it's kind of important to define what we mean when we talk about trauma, because... For many, it would be internally defined, wouldn't it? I mean, what I experience as traumatic, you might just not give a bat an eyelid to yourself. And I just wonder, is there an agreed definition of it? Yeah, so for the purposes of diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, there is an agreed definition. Um, and it's post-traumatic stress disorder is very unusual as um, a psychological or a psychiatric disorder as it requires that you have an event that something must have happened to you and there's no other psychological disorder or psychiatric disorder where that is seen as you know you must have a, a prerequisite event effectively um, so yes the this, you and I could have the same event happen to us um, but you could see it as, tr as very traumatic. You could appraise it as being incredibly stressful and I might appraise it the exact same event as being something that is just part of life and I'm, I must continue with. Um, so there's a lot of criticism of how trauma is defined um, and in particular in relation to post-traumatic stress disorder there's a lot of uh, criticism because for many people who experience the most adversity it takes them a long time to be post-trauma they might never be post-trauma they might it might be with them or they you know if you think of examples like Vietnamese boat people actually the the event is one thing do you know what happened to them is one thing but then there's all the consequences of having to flee the country into which they were born, that they become refugees, they maybe are bereaved, um, they're separated from their families. You know, all of these things are then, you know, consequences. So if we take a sort of what is probably a reasonably usual trauma in Ireland, or we could at least say, right, advocates would say that there's one in four have <laughs> suffered from child abuse. Um, if we take that as a reasonably usual 
uh, trauma, many people, it, it isn't a discrete event. You know, we can see that in the papers. People who have been abused serially for five years, for 10 years. So that kind of event tends to alter substantively how people view the world. They've, they begin to view the world in a very different way to someone who hasn't had that experience because their trust in other people, particularly if it happens at a young, young age, can be terribly undermined for really the rest of their lives. Um, they see the, the world as much more dangerous and frightening than somebody who has never experienced child abuse. Of course. And, and I suppose then if you think about an event like a terrorist attack. Yes. Which is it happens and then it mm. finishes. Mm. Uh, and if you survive it, then mm. you have to manage that. You know, I wonder as a researcher, how do you then quantify and analyse trauma in those two different circumstances? So you yeah. have someone who has experienced uh, child abuse yeah. versus someone who's experienced terrorism or, or, or is it just impossible? Well, one of the things we know is, for instance, in that example, if we take people who experience a terrorist attack who have and have not had a history of child abuse, which we, I think, would all accept is a traumatic experience, is that the biological reaction of those who have been abused compared to those who have not is actually different when they then encounter the terrorist attack. So... People who have been abused or who have experienced chronic trauma tend to have a f well, uh, higher levels of cortisol. So they're, more, you know, this flight or f uh, fright response. They, they, they tend to be in this sort of resistance phase biologically. So they're a little bit more immune suppressed than somebody who hasn't been abused. So they, they, they look a little bit different when we when we examine them in terms of, you know, can, you can pick up cortisol in your saliva, you can check it in, you can check levels in, um, in your bloodstream. So these kinds of indicators show us that actually they're just in a heightened state of arousal, um, which then means that if another event occurs, like a terrorist incident, they, it is just that bit, they're, that bit more difficult for them to endure. They're a little bit more vulnerable. So Mark, th this example, this is essentially a, an exposure to trauma, leaving a physical imprint on someone. Perhaps it is. Um, it, it depends really on what we're talking about with a terrorist attack, though, if we're going to use that example. And I don't in any way dispute the broader pattern. But um, before I began to look at specific attacks, and I was interested in public behaviour in the first few minutes of them, I did try to understand how others had, had looked at these events. And there's a kind of an area called disaster psychology where you do find some people have essentially kind of proposed hypotheses, like things like crowds don't actually panic, people identify with each other, a fight or flight kicks in, etc. And what I discovered, perhaps because nobody had actually looked at actual events like that, where you, you interview large numbers of people across different cultures, is that none of that actually seemed to work particularly well uh, when you actually spoke to people in in very specific attacks. And what I mean by that is, is simply this. The first thing is, I study the first few minutes for a very particular reason. Um, so in counterterrorism circles, the key issue when an attack happens is to put in armed responders as quickly as possible. 10 minutes was the rough term that people used around the world. Um, essentially, for America, they say to get a SWAT team on the ground. In Britain, it would be to bring in 
strategic firearms officers. So to be clear, this is the 10 minutes. For example, yeah. your, particularly your research has recently looked at how people respond to terrorist attacks within the first 10 minutes of these incidents. So that's the point where help has not arrived. Exactly. You realise what you're in and, yeah. and you could be... Or not realise. Or not realise. Um, yeah. and, and that's that's when it becomes uh, very, very interesting to study and very tricky. So so what actually happens? Well, well, let's take some examples. The most horrifying one I studied was the Westgate Mal attack in which Al-Shabaab militia uh, attacked a shopping centre. There was a children's cookery competition happening. Uh, these are heavily armed soldiers, essentially, who mowed down hundreds and hundreds of people over several days, actually, and live streamed the whole thing and then repeated it very recently, of course, in the Dusit attack in, in Nairobi. So I isolated an area of, of Westgate and interviewed everybody that was there at that particular point. And what you actually found was that the fight or flight model actually didn't really work terribly well for, for a very particular reason. Um, what actually happened was what I term waves of recognition started to break across the group of people. Um, some people actually panicked. Some people climbed over each other to get to safety. I, other attacks, people left their children and ran away, believe it or not. Um, but in these types of situations, people would become frightened and then hide. And then they might become a rescuer of somebody else. And so they become tending and befriending. And then they would maybe freeze or fawn, beg for their life, try to, to negotiate with people. So there was all these kind of waves of recognition of what was happening, but then different types of response. And then when you talk to people afterwards, they weren't really able to say what had actually happened very often. Uh, it became quite confused because not only was the event something completely unique, it would be the kind of oddball effect in which they remember everything as very elongated time, things are very, very different for them and how they experienced on the person next to them, but they, they themselves seem to be different people at different moments in the attack. So, and actually in some ways, um, it, it just became kind of odd as something to talk about with people. But you did, did get to see the pattern then start to emerge, actually, in some ways, which was that people who had some pre-existing resilience uh, behaved remarkably differently from other people. Now, the example I often give, because I just I found it so interesting, um, was the Glasgow Airport attack in 2007. And if, if you remember, it was... Um, rather horrifying in some ways, two medical uh, staff members in Glasgow Hospital drove an SUV into the front doors of the airport. And that was the first day of school holidays. So there was actually hundreds of school children inside. It could have been a complete massacre, in fact. Um, but I, I interviewed people who were at that doorway, essentially, uh, lots of them. Um, and there was one girl who's now very successful in the legal profession in London, but she was 13 at the time. Um, and the, the images on the CCTV on my interview with her showed somebody who's completely calm, 13-year-old child, who actually brought people to safety. Um, you kind of go, what, what could possibly, how could a 13-year-old child be calm? At one point, she actually passed an official from the airport who was screaming, you know, nonsense, and she calmed him down and then continued to lead children to safety. But what actually happened was that when she was a very young child, she was sitting in front of the television one day, which happened to be the 11th of September 2001, uh, the television, like we all remember, of course, came out of these huge images and frightening, horrifying images. Her parents uh, had a relative in the Twin Towers, they thought, and so went into the different room to make a phone call, couldn't get through. And she sat there as a very small child watching a horror movie, essentially, for about two hours. Um, and she remembered even seeing people jump, which was shown live, of course, if we remember at one point. So, and then she had nightmares um, for years and years burning planes, buildings. And she said, I just needed to get over it. Um, I, I was in school. There was a school trip. I decided that's it. It'll be my time to conquer my fears. And she went to Glasgow airport and there was a terrorist attack. Um, and she said, well, I was completely calm because I'd lived through it. 
I'd seen it all before. Basically. So when you talk about resilience being the, the key thing, are you talking about experience? The people who yeah. had some sort of experience in their lives already? I think so. And, and I would defer to others on this. I, I assume there is individual characteristics of personality type will play a role. But I also think instantly with terrorism, it's the visual capacity to process the information and put it somewhere in a box that makes it uh, something you can deal with. And I think in many, many terrorist attacks, at least the people that I've interviewed, if they're younger, they tended, as soon as all hell breaks loose, to pick up their phone and try to record it, to somehow mediate it. Uh, I interviewed people who videoed terrorist attacks. You can actually hear people behind them asking them, does it look like Die Hard or some Steven Seagal movie? And they're actually chatting as if nothing is happening and there's somebody on fire in front of them. People can't process some of these things. Is there a gender difference between the, the, men and women? I discovered a very large one, yes. Uh, men tended to either panic or try to fight the situation or immediately assume control, somehow, usually not terribly well. Um, and females generally tended to be much calmer and tended to grab clusters of people around them and try to bring them to safety. Now, that's also, it was cross-cultural in the relatively small sample that I looked at. Orla, when you hear that and when you hear the experiences, as Mark has, has researched of people who have, uh, you know, experienced firsthand the shock and the trauma of being involved in something that is so threatening and so impossible for anyone else to manage. You know, I just wonder how much, you know, your own work, I mean, you've looked at the impact of political violence and conflict and ha what it can have on children. Um, you know, children seem to be on the one hand spoken of as being you know, re resilient and they'll get over it and don't worry about the kids, they'll be all right. But what did your research find when it, when it came to that particular question of how children fared as time went on? So we know internationally um, that children, the children that do best uh, are those whose parents do best. So most children under the age of 10 do an awful lot of their interpretation via how their parents interpret. So if the parents are interpreting well and saying this will be fine and we move on, um, generally speaking, the children do well. Um, so the children use adults to interpret what it is that's happening to them. And that research, for example, your work looking particularly at the Troubles, that would bear out that it's almost modelling behaviour, is it? No, I don't think it's modelling behaviour because you wouldn't necessarily have the situation where the parent would have had the same experience as the child. So it wouldn't necessarily be modelling. I suppose um, a huge amount of the work that I have done since and going back to this notion of resilience um, would suggest that those people who do well are those people who are well supported, whether they're adults or children, and that those people who do badly are those people who are pushed to the margins of society or who are silenced when they have been traumatised. Um, so if we're talking about children, maybe the reason that children do well with parents who do well is because the parents will talk to them about it. Oftentimes we say, oh, it won't affect the children. Or, yes, that would be one narrative. But we also sometimes say, don't mention it in front of the children. And actually, that isn't a particularly safe approach to take because the children have a fairly good idea of what's going on and you're just silencing them. You're allowing them not to speak. So the um, going back to predicting who does well and who doesn't do well is 
generally speaking, those who do well are those who gather others around them, whether they're men or women. So men or women or children who manage to gather others around them um, for support, um, you know, to use as resources, they do well. But one of the things that we know about trauma is that trauma itself can be stigmatising. So the traumas where we find really the worst outcomes tend to be traumas like where people are facially disfigured, where they have burn marks um, or or where people are sexually assaulted because they tend to be things that are stigmatised. So you can't gather people around you. Um, So people who are left with facial disfigurement are Others don't necessarily mean to do it, um, but they can inadvertently draw back. Um, And it is that being pushed to the margins that actually compounds the trauma. Um, So that's nearly worse. And so if you speak to people who've been raped, for instance, they will often tell you, "Okay, the rape was dreadful. But what was really awful was how my parents reacted mm. or what was really awful was how, was how I was treated in the court system. Um, and we also know that men who are raped tend to be silenced much more than women who are raped. And actually the outcome for men who are raped because they can't draw people around them in the way that women may be able to and um, because it's more common and um, sort of more ex- acceptable, used with quotation marks, um, uh, is that it makes it much more difficult for men. So a huge amount of what we're talking about when we're talking about how people do after trauma is to do with how other people respond to the trauma and whether or not other people are able to speak to uh, or listen or hear what it is, these stories that uh, that others are coming back with. I recently was rereading testimonies from the Irish famine and the impact that it had for generations of, of people that went after them. Uh, I wonder, is there research looking at the idea of inherited trauma? You know, is it possible to be traumatised by something that you have not in any way experienced yourself? No, I don't think so. I mean, one example I would give is, for example, September the 11th, Mm. in that, you know, people watching that, it was televised. And so often these events now are televised. Mark, you you spoke about people in terrorist attacks actually videoing them. You know, the the idea that you can be traumatised by by witnessing these televised events, Mm. having not experienced them yourselves. I think it's one that certainly parents in particular would be quite heightened to because of the exposure of children to these events yeah. and, and in a way that you would never have had them before. Yeah, so I guess I wouldn't c- classify that as trauma. I think a little bit like the way we use the word depression. The word trauma is now used uh, in a way that is maybe a little bit looser than the way I would use it as a psychologist. So I wouldn't for a moment suggest that there isn't a consequence for people by watching something like that on the TV. I wouldn't for a moment suggest that people who watched the Manchester bombing mightn't have been extremely distressed. But the people who are most likely to be distressed by that are the people who think that those affected are like them. Mark, is it, is it fair to ask if trauma can be positive? I think it's a perfectly reasonable question. Um, our species is 
relatively violent by any stretch of the imagination. We, we do terrible things to each other. Um, there's consequences of that and meaning making, which is quite a clever way to, to think this through. Um, and that has political and social consequences. Um, people rebuild societies after traumas. People rethink societies after traumas on a collective level. And sometimes these traumas have never actually happened, which is one thing. Sometimes the historical events have never happened. There's a very, uh, I found it amusing, maybe a macabre book, uh, quite a serious book called Approaching the Past, where two uh, American academics come to Ireland and want to study the impacts of the famine. It's a very serious historical tome. Um, and they discovered in their research area, which is the, the southeast of Ireland, um, that really the famine never actually occurred in the neighbourhoods and towns that they were studying. Yet everybody had a perfect memory of rack-renting landlords. And, you know, they were able to tell everybody's story through their neighbourhood, even though it didn't actually exist. And we have to remember that, I guess, as well, that that sometimes uh, the culture of meaning-making uh, disconnects itself from reality. Uh, you can have somebody else's trauma in that instance, if you know what I mean. Mm, uh, no. Orla, I mean, I suppose it's this, this idea that, you know, you can grow from a crisis, which I yeah. suppose people can roll their eyes about yeah. and just think this is sort of psychobabble. Yeah. But there's something to it, isn't there? Yeah, so I would say there's two ways in which that's true. Um, the first one is there's quite a bit of evidence that people who have had post-traumatic stress disorder often also have post-traumatic growth. So we think maybe one in two people um, actually have a period of growth after trauma. And we've done quite a good bit of work um, in Limerick uh, with people who have acquired brain injury. And we see even those who have become quite disabled as a consequence of brain injury often talk about their luck um, and how lucky they are and talk about how um, they're their brain injury revealed um, so much good in their family, in others, in their relationships. So there is a, a kind of a personal growth that can occur. And then the other form of growth um, that can occur and is written extensively in uh, a book by a sociologist called A Paradise Built in Hell um, is a kind of systems rethink um, where we uh, look at how it is that something came to pass, how it was possible that such a collective um, disaster may have occurred and then interrogate the systems. And I think we have done that in this country on a couple of occasions. I certainly think that we did it um, with regard to the um, child abuse scandals. Do you know Indeed. that we, we did look at how it is the system could have allowed that. And I do think we will face into that. Um, after COVID. We, yeah, yeah. After, as we think about how how we might have done better, what we could do, what, how, how we might change, what it is that is, I think COVID is revealing the um, fault lines in Irish society. And I think we will continue to look at them because of that. It's such a such a fascinating area that we cannot possibly even begin to scratch the surface in, in half an hour. But thank you both so much. There's more on rte.ie slash brainstorm. But Orla Muldoon and Mark Maguire, thank you both so much.